0: Hey, this is Jeremy Isaacs, lead pastor of Generations Church, where we want to live like it matters. For more information about our church, you can visit us at g.church. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. Thanks again for listening. January the 7th, 2024. It sounds like something you would hear in a sci-fi novel, doesn't it? 2024. But here it is on our calendars. And of course, beginnings matter. Beginnings matter in a life with God. God. They matter in the life of faith, especially we could say that the life of faith is nothing more than a series of new beginnings every day. In fact, in the Jewish conception or understanding of the day, the day does not start when the sun rises, it starts instead when the sun sets, showing that every new day is a movement out of darkness and chaos into light and to order. that every day is a new opportunity. That's why Lamentations 3 says that his mercies are new every morning, new beginnings, matter. And if you pay attention to scripture, you'll learn that a lot of new things begin, not just in any new beginning, but at the beginning of Israel's calendar, the first day of the first month of their year. It's on the first day of the first month, for example, that God speaks to Israel when they're in slavery in Egypt and gives them the command of the Passover. And in fact, it's that day when God speaks that starts their calendar. They didn't have a calendar prior to that moment, but it's God's word that creates that calendar for them, which reminds us... That we do not put God on our calendars, but rather surrender all our time to God because God is our time. It's then just one year later, on the first day of the first month, that Moses finishes the tabernacle and God's glory descends upon it and fills it. The creation order, the created order is now complete, that God dwells with God's people. It's the first day of the first month that Hezekiah consecrates the priests and the Levites to celebrate the Passover in 2 Chronicles. It's the first day of the first month that Ezra leaves home to go teach the law of God to the Judahite population that had returned from exile. It's the first day of the first month that Nehemiah asks King Artaxerxes of Persia so that he can return home and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Let's just say the first day of the first month matters. And here we are, the first Sunday of the year. And I don't know what goals you have for the year, but we're starting at the beginning, the most important beginning, which is, of course, the beginning of a life with faith that begins in hearing the Word of God, hence the series, the book. Now, this sermon is not necessarily what you would call a part of that series, Pastor Jeremy texted me yesterday at noon, and he said, are you busy tomorrow, right? <laughs> he gave me complete leeway to do what I wanted and needed to do. But this is a, an informative or helpful prologue or preface, something to whet the appetite for a series that's dedicated to... The Word of God, of course, all sermons are dedicated to the Word of God, especially here at Generations Church, but a a sermon series dedicated to understanding what the Word is and how to read it personally and how to read it in a way that makes sense. And so that's what this is. If you have your Bibles, please open them with me to the book of Psalms, chapter 1. Psalm 1 is where we will be today because there's no better way to start the year than, of course, to center ourselves in the Word of God. Now, it's often the case that when we hear sermons that talk about how to read the Bible or why the Bible is important in a daily life with God, those sermons can leave us feeling woefully inadequate. Not because the pastor, him or herself, is mean, but because we have our own insecurities about reading the Word of God. It's not enough, apparently, that the Bible is difficult reading on its own, isn't it? The Bible's difficult to read. Now, we often assume that it's not, but easy things are things like Netflix and scrolling the algorithms. If scripture were easy, we would be doing more of it. But one, it's reading, and reading itself is hard, but you add to it that the book is two and 3,000 years old from cultures that look nothing like our own, from languages that look nothing like our own, and it's from those places that God speaks. It's difficult reading. Of course, we have our favorite scripture verses that we put in Instagram memes and Hobby Lobby plaques that we hang for our neighbors to see in our homes. It's very important. We posture to our neighbors that we're pious. So we have various verses that we claim to be our life verse, but let's be honest, that's not most of the Bible, right? Nobody has a Hobby Lobby plaque in their house that says, and they were all circumcised at Gilgal, you know? (laughs) That's the way that most of the Bible reads, you know? It's just my life verse. It really speaks to me. Right? Even reading through the Bible in a year. How many of us have tried, have died on the altar of reading through the Bible in a year? Okay, so we often start in Genesis when we read through the Bible in a year month of January. It's usually January goes pretty good because Genesis is decently entertaining. It's like a reality television show or something, right? Very dysfunctional family and Abraham and Sarah and all their grandkids and all of that. But you're only five chapters in and you start getting genealogies, right? Begat, begat, begat. If you're reading in the King James and of course you wonder why any of this matters. And of course all of it does matter. We're not going to talk about genealogies today. I'm going to start the year there. But you get through Genesis Entertaining reality television show. Then you get to Exodus, and Exodus is like a good rated R movie, right? All kinds of entertainment and all kinds of pyrotechnics and plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and all of that. And then you get through the wilderness and you get to Exodus 19 and you get to Sinai. And Sinai is where all read through the Bible in a year programs go to die. Because you're at Sinai from Exodus 19 to Exodus 40, and then Leviticus 1 through 27, and then Numbers 1 through 10. And even when you depart Sinai, you're still in the wilderness, and it's more law. And you get to Deuteronomy 34 chapters of Moses talking. Will he not just go ahead and die, you know? He's got so much to say. Joshua, finally, some more entertaining narrative, but even after only 11 or 12 chapters, there you're right back to parceling out the land, boring, boring, boring. Let's just say the Bible's difficult reading, and we ought not kid ourselves to assume that it's easy. And so we find ourselves reading the Bible, and I would assume that most of us in here are very sincere in our walk with God. And in that sincerity, at the same time, many of us carry insecurities about our own personal Bible reading. How many of us would be honest in the room and say, sometimes I wonder if I'm good at this Bible reading thing, right? Anybody want to, let's testify together, good. This is a good dysfunctional family this morning. As we read, get our notebooks out, we write down some thoughts. We don't know if they're from God. we, We hope they're from God. Sometimes it's very clear they're from God. But we have these questions. Did I read enough? Did I read too little? Did I read too long or short? Was that God's voice or just my own voice or the chicken sandwich I had yesterday? I didn't understand what I read. Is that okay that I didn't understand it? Was I paying close enough attention? Is God disappointed with me in how rarely I do this or how poorly I do this? And even as encouraging as that time can be, there's also all kinds of insecurities and inadequacies. Hear me. Hear me. If you don't hear anything else this morning, please hear this. Let me tell you the gospel news of Jesus Christ. God is not disappointed with you. God looks upon you with great and deep and eternal affection. On this day, God loves you exactly for who you are right now. Not the person you want to be, not the person you failed to be, not the person you're striving to be, the person you once were, not for the purposes that you're pursuing in his name, His affection is not an invitation, it is a reality. It is the most real thing about you. His grace is holding your very being together right now, such that from the moment that you were born to the moment that you die, every breath is an inhaling of grace and an exhaling of grace moment over and over and over Again, so reading the word of God is not about earning God's affection. It's not about making God happy. Reading the word of God is living into and hearing and receiving and resting in the love of God. It does not mean that that love won't hurt, however. It's not because God is an abuser or God is violent, but rather because God is the good surgeon who does what is necessary to heal us. And when he touches the broken places of us with his healing touch, there's a pain sometimes, and the word of God will cut us open. But it's good for us, just like surgery is good for us, depending on the surgeon. Come on. All right. So, all of that to say that the word of God, we read it to live into and to be formed into the image of that love. So, whether you have the entire book of Amos memorized or this morning's the first time that you're hearing that Amos is a prophet and not just a cookie, it, it doesn't matter. The Lord is with you and the Lord longs to speak to you in his word. If you've got 90 Bibles or you're just downloading the Bible app for the first time this morning, the Lord is with you and the Lord longs to speak to you in his word. If your sin is only a couple hours ago, the Lord is with you the lord longs to speak to you in his word and in fact the lord is much desires more that you hear his word than you desire to listen and god is with you and so this morning this sermon is not necessarily about how to read it in some kind of practical application that will come it's not about what the bible is that will come to this is instead reading the word of god to learn how might we engage it this sermon is an invitation to come to the waters and to drink, and to learn how to approach the Word of God, and to engage it faithfully. And to do that, we're in Psalm 1. Now, the book of Psalms is not written in order, by the way, so it's not that Psalm 1 is the oldest psalm. It's instead that the psalms are intentionally arranged. All 150 chapters coming together over multiple centuries, they're intentionally arranged, kind of like a concept album. It's like Pink Floyd wrote the psalms or something. And so, Psalm 150 is placed at the end for a reason, and Psalm 1 was written likely toward the end of the, book of, the Psalms, of the book of Psalms composition to serve as a fitting introduction for it. And it's going to give us a very simple outlook here right at the beginning. And to do that, I want to walk through the psalm, I want us to look at four very simple and brief insights. And the first one is this, Psalm 1 teaches us to read the word of God obediently, to read the word of God obediently. Now, before we ever learn what the righteous person does in reading the law of God, we first learn what the righteous person doesn't. And here in verse one is what the word of God says. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. The word blessed is the word asherah in Hebrew. Everybody say asherah. If, you're, if your name is Asher, your name means happiness or joy. So uh, Asher is often translated blessed, as you saw it here in NIV. It's also translated happy. A very basic definition of the word might be something like this, enviable, enviable, which is to say that it's not just describing somebody that's joyful, and it's not just describing somebody who's received good things from God, even though those are good translations, but it's describing somebody who's a bit further down the road of life than you are. Somebody who leads an existence that you envy. Do you know these people whose lives are so put together, so faithful, so pious that you're jealous of them and you hate them for it? You know what I'm talking about, these persons, yeah? So Psalm 1 is mapping out that enviable kind of life. And as I said, it doesn't start with what to do, but with what not to do or what this person hasn't done. he doesn't hang out with three types of people. The first are the wicked, those opposed to the way and the will of God. The others are the sinners, those directly in violation of the law of God. And then thirdly, these are my favorite, the mockers or the scoffers, the late seem in Hebrew. They're often found in the book of Proverbs. And these are people who are not just stupid but stupid and proud of it. You know these persons, yes, you live with these people. You know exactly what I'm talking about. If you think you're not one, then you probably are one. That's the way it goes, yeah? So they're stupid and proud of it. But the psalmist is not just telling us of somebody who avoids the bad crowds. Notice the poetry. Notice there's a movement in the poetry. What happens in the first line? We're walking. What happens in the second line? We're standing. What happens in the third line? We're sitting down. Yashav in Hebrew, we're taking a seat. We're dwelling in something. We've made a home in something. And so it shows us the subtleties of the digression of wickedness in the life of the human being that there are certain destructive choices that we only intended to walk by. Do you know what I'm talking about? We only intended to look out of the corner of our eye and see what was going on over there. But as we walk by, we check our watch and we realize that we can spare a few more minutes than we thought. And after a while, we look up, we think it's been two or three hours and it's actually been two or three years or 20 or 30 years. And we ask ourselves, how did I end up here? Because those people we thought that were morally inferior to ourselves, those mockers, those idiots, those scoffers are now our neighbors. And we're on the HOA board with them and we complain about the same stuff. And we're so entrenched in our ways just as they are. And we ask, how did we get here? See, the psalmist shows us The subtlety of that digression, it shows us that wickedness, destructive choices, sins, they almost ambush us more than we choose them. Doesn't that sound about right? That we find ourselves saying words uh, to our spouse or to our children or to those that we're around, and we ask ourselves, how did I become this angry? How did I become this abusive? How did I become this vitriolic? That it's as if the psalmist is showing us that wickedness is not a decision, but a default that it's not intentional, it's involuntary. It's the working out of a life that's on autopilot, that nobody sets out in 2024 to be an idiot. But we all end up being idiots, don't we? Nevertheless, there's no college course on how to perfect your inner center because this is just the default mode of our existence. You know the story of King David, don't you? A man after God's own heart. One who leaned upon God as he made his way to the throne and was faithful to God. And God promised him that from his line would come eventually the Messiah, this faithful man of God. Well, at the end of 2 Samuel, in 2 Samuel 19 and 20, David is seated in a room all alone. He's weeping and wailing so loudly that the entire Israelite army can hear him. He's not in Jerusalem. He's in exile in a nearby town. And he's wailing and screaming over and over again, oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. Absalom, my son. Because Absalom has died in a civil war between them. How did David get to this point? Was David just the victim of a series of unfortunate events like most of us often are? Well, no, because if you read the story closely, all of this could have been avoided. Why is he in a civil war with Absalom? Well, because several years earlier, Absalom's sister, Tamar, had been assaulted by their half-brother, Amnon. And when David heard about this assault, David didn't do anything about it, which made Absalom angry. Absalom then killed his brother, Amnon, and waged civil war and turned the hearts of Israel against his father. But again, why would David not care what was going on in this situation? Well, just a few months prior to that, we learned that Nathan, the prophet, told David that the sword would never leave his house But why would God say that? Well, because just a few months earlier, David had killed Uriah, one of his mighty men, as a murder, a kind of staged murder to cover something up. Again, why would he do that? Because he had impregnated Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and he couldn't cover it up. And so he just kills Uriah. But then again, why was he doing this with Bathsheba? Because on one particular afternoon when kings were supposed to go to war, David went for a walk on the balcony. One walk led ultimately to all these dominoes falling and the death of his son that could have been avoided. Happy is the one who never takes the walk in the first place. And I read the word of God obediently, not just because it's an act of love unto God, that's the primary reason, but in reading the word of God, God is sparing me unnecessary suffering because this life is filled with enough suffering on its own. Read obediently. The second after we learn to read obediently, we learn to read with desire and discipline. Read with desire and with discipline. So don't hang out with those kind of people, says Psalm 1. Or that's what the righteous person does. You don't have to be that way. But the enviable person, that's what he does. Verse two, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates daily and nightly. So we can't lead our lives just trying to avoid bad decisions. The reason the psalmist doesn't make the bad choices, is because he's too preoccupied doing something else. Now, his delight is in the law of the Lord. That's the word chefetz in Hebrew. Everybody say chefetz. Let's try that again. Chefetz. Good, we're all going to get COVID together. All right, so chefetz is a word. Lord forbid, no, that's a bad joke. All right, so chefetz describes not just pious desire, but describes also... The desire for romantic relationships, the desire for good food, the desire for fine jewelry, which is to say that the psalmist doesn 't just like the Bible, the psalmist is infatuated with the Word of God, and he can't get enough of it, and when he 's not with it, he longs to be with it that there's this fundamental desire in the psalmist 's life for the Word of God and only the Word of God, but then the second line is just as important first line. Uh, his delight is in the law of the Lord. In second line, on his law, he meditates. The word meditate is the word haga. Everybody say haga. You hear the breath in haga. It's a word that doesn't just mean to think or ponder, but instead it means to mumble or to whisper. It describes the cooing of a dove or the growling of a lion. It's as if the psalmist isn't just reading it, but he's mumbling it, whispering it throughout the day, that his speech is dripping with the law and the word of God and every conversation that he has. Do you know these persons that they just speak Bible as if it's a native language? You know, what it's like King James was their uncle or something. Yeah, this is, the, this is the psalmist. He's not just one who desires it, but how often is he meditating daily and nightly, flowing like a harpoon is what Vanilla Ice would say. Do you know, do you know Vanilla Ice? <laughs> yeah, there came a generation who knew not Vanilla Ice or the things he had done for them, but it's a bad joke. Uh, How often daily and nightly, which is to say, how often should I be reading and meditating and speaking the law in the mornings? Uh Uh-huh. In the afternoons, probably then too. How about the evenings? Yeah, that's a good time. How about I wake up at three? Is that a good time? That's a perfect time. In fact, there's never an untimely season for the reading of the word of God. And the two together desire and discipline are important. Hear me, desire without discipline is a sentimental and empty faith. This is a faith that wants transformation but can only fake it. This is a faith that wants the resurrection of Jesus Christ but won't share in his sufferings to get there. It's an empty faith. But hear me, the discipline of reading the word of God without the desire for it leads to a brittle and dry legalism. This is someone who knows the word of God, chapter and verse, knows the law of God, but has not the love of God. And there's nothing more dangerous than the word of God in the hands of someone who does not have the love of God. So it's discipline, it's desire together that fosters this transformative engagement. As was mentioned ago, I have two and a half children. Um, (laughs) My wife is due on February the 3rd. And so um, my children are 12 years old and nine years old and Newborn, yeah, just like we drew it up. And so um, <laughs> we're having to rebuy everything. That's the best part of all of this. It's like staring at a tidal wave that's coming. Anyway, so we don't, it's going to be crazy. So, my daughter, when she was seven years old, in 2019, we moved to uh, just outside of Cleveland, Tennessee, between Cleveland and Chattanooga, and Utah, Tennessee is where we are. And when we, we, that was when I became a professor at Lee. And when we were there, this was we finally had the opportunity to do something special. My grandmother, my mom's mother, my mamaw had passed away in 2017. She owned a baby grand piano that upon her death she wanted me to have because I was the only one in the family who played the piano. And so we had no room in our house at the time when she passed away to to take that into our home. And so in 2019, we made a room for the piano. This was the first time that my children had the opportunity ever to play a keyboard like that. And so as we're unpacking boxes, I notice my daughter, she goes over to the, to the piano and lifts up the cover and begins to play a little bit, just to see what this thing is, right? So she quickly learns that that right pedal is the sustain pedal. So yes, she begins to play the left side of the keyboard, it sounds muddled and it sounds muddy, and she begins to play half steps together, it sounds dissonant, so she starts to avoid those kinds of things, and I'm hearing her learn the keyboard. She starts playing only the white keys, the key of C major, relative minor, A minor, all of, the, all of that to say, she's following her ear. And as my wife and I are unpacking boxes, my wife turns to me and she says, Justin, listen, that sounds pretty good. As these chords are hanging, ringing out across the keyboard. And I said, of course it sounds good. She's playing only in C major with the sustain pedal down. This is how white people write worship music, right? Okay, so <laughs> just delay for days. All right, so I said, of course it sounds good. So she starts to go beyond her creative experiences, and the very first song she ever learns is Baby Shark. Now, you know, Baby Shark, verse 5 on the keyboard, sounds just like verse 1 and 2, yeah? And so this was, of course, if it's the only thing you play, every time you go to the piano, you play that song. And so for months, it was just Baby Shark. Well, soon after, we found a teacher for her. She had a desire to, to get more training, or we might say discipline in the habit. And somebody taught her how to read the notes and to play some initial songs and all of that. And just, even though she doesn't take lessons anymore, just yesterday she was playing Linus and Lucy on the keyboard. And of course, along with that comes a host of other songs by Taylor Swift, our Lord and Savior. Um, So all of that to say, she's become a little piano player. And it wasn't just the desire. The desire alone wasn't going to cut it. But see, when the discipline got too harsh, the desire evaporated. Both together, however, this feedback loop of sitting down every day and yet at the same time finding the desire of learning to play the keyboard. the hat that itself is what made her into a kind of piano player. Origen says, great Christian thinker and philosopher of the second century, Origen says that learning the word of God is a lot like learning to play an instrument. You have to learn what's dissonant and it takes time to develop an ear for it. It's going to take, well, of course, years and days upon days Practice but desire and discipline together are important. Here's a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian, martyr under the Nazi regime. He writes this to seminarians who are under Nazi control, an underground seminary. And this is what he says about the importance of reading the Word of God. He says this, "Why do I meditate? Because I am a Christian. Why do I meditate on the law of God because I'm a Christian? And because for that very reason, every day is lost to me in which I have not deepened my knowledge of God's word and Holy Scripture. Did you hear that? You can get the entire to-do list done, but if the word of God has not been learned, it's a waste of a day. It is only on the firm basis of God's word that I can take certain steps. As a Christian, however, it's only through hearing the sermon and through prayerful meditation that I come to know Holy Scripture. Here it is again. Why do I meditate? Because I need a firm discipline for prayer. We too often pray according to our mood, praying for a short time or a long time or not at all. Such prayer is willful. Prayer, here it is, is not a free offering to God, but rather service that we owe to God, service that God demands. We are not free merely to deal with prayer as we might wish. Prayer is the first worship service of each day. God needed time before coming to us in Christ for our salvation. God needs time before coming into my heart for salvation. Our proper generous service each day can come only from the peace of God's word. I taught a class last semester. It was called Violence in the Old Testament. Thrilling, I know. Um, But in that class, 30 normal students or college-age students, we might say, and there was one student, older adult, who was um, serving as a pastor as well. And she audited the class, and she was very thoughtful and wonderful, and her engagement was a welcome engagement in the course. And after it was all over, at the end of the semester, she threw a party for all the college students saying, thank you for allowing me to be a part of your class, which is really sweet. But in the course of that party, I got to talking to her, and I asked her her history, her background, et cetera, and it came to this natural moment in the conversation. She says, I don't tell many people this. She says, but two years ago, I realized that I really didn't know the word of God like I should. And the Spirit of God told me that I needed to read the entire Bible in a month. And I did. I devoted two to three hours a day to reading the entire Bible in a month. month of, I guess it was January, two years ago. She said, and at the end of that month, the Spirit of God told me, I need you to do that again. I did it in February, and then I did it in March. She said, it's been 24 straight months of reading the entire Bible in a month. I'm not saying that Jesus is telling you to do that. I'm also not saying that Jesus isn't telling you to do that either, which is to say it takes discipline and desire together. Perhaps you don't read at all. Start somewhere. Perhaps you're stuck in a regimen. Well, then maybe change it up and read a little more. Yeah, desire and discipline together. So what does that person look like? Well, we learn in verse three, a new disposition. We read, one, with obedience, two, with desire and discipline, and three, we read with patience. We read with patience. It takes time for the word of God to do its work in our lives. What's that person like? Verse three, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water. The word planted could also be translated transplanted, which means it was at a dead and dying place in a hidden hand, capital H hand, took that dying tree out of that wilderness and put it right beside The streams of water. So as we read the word of God, God takes us out of the wilderness and places us in the waters of his spirit, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Now pay attention. How often is this tree yielding its fruit? Is it all year round? Uh Uh-uh. Only in season. But when it's not being productive, is it dead? No, its leaves never wither. So how do you know? How does the tree know when to be productive? when to work and when to rest. Well, of course, the waters tell the tree that. Exactly. So the person who meditates on the law of God is like this deeply rooted tree. But let's learn about the wicked. They hardly get a line of the poem. Verse four, not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. Well, it's chaff. Well, it's not something you need gold bond for. Chaff is instead something like lawn clippings. yeah. So after you mow the lawn and all those clippings are in the driveway, all those clippings are in the road, you've got to take a leaf blower and blow those back into the yard. right? Now, if you were stupid and didn't know better, you would assume that those lawn clippings have a kind of life to them. Because whenever the wind hits them, they're moving left and they're moving right and up and down and all over the place. It's as though they're agitated or something. And if you didn't know any better, you would say, that tree's dead. It doesn't even hardly move when the wind blows against it. It just sits there stationary. But you come back a year later, and what do you find? You can't find a single clipping of that chaff. But that tree has grown considerably. Which of the two better characterizes your life? I think we're more like the chaff, aren't we? We carry around our busyness like it's a trophy. How many of you already today, somebody said, how's your year going? And you said, busy, right? I'm just so busy. Look how important I am. Look how many people need me and want me. It's a sign of our own self-importance. That's why we say busy. We're not lying either. Our lives are busy. We're chasing our children around, chasing our family around. We're taking on new responsibilities at work to prove to ourselves that we're important. But hear me, just because we're moving does not mean we are alive. But on the other side. Is your life like that of the tree? Now, for the tree to grow like it does so slowly and so intentionally, it takes a certain kind of patience, doesn't it? Now, in order to become like the tree, there's not six things to do. There's just, well, one thing, daily and nightly, meditating upon the law of God, which might mean for you that 2024 is the year that you learn to say no. No. No, I'm not going to do that thing, because that would take away from that appointment that I have with God every morning and every evening. No, I'm not going to do that thing, because that's not going to bring me into life. Instead, I'm going to say yes to the one thing that's important. Would you say Jesus' life was more like the chaff or the tree? Was Jesus busy? No. Jesus had one appointment. Get to Jerusalem by 33. <laughs> one appointment. One appointment. Jesus didn't even have a home. Jesus woke up every day and said, God, my time is your time, which means that he was available for any interruption that the day might bring. And he was one also who was so slow in his movement that he could say, you know what the kingdom of God is like? Have you ever paid attention to the lilies of the field? The kingdom's just like that. Because he paid attention to the world around him and his life was slow enough to accommodate it. God is saying, I'm inviting you to rest. I'm inviting you to say no to some things that you think you need to prove to yourself that you're important, to find life and love and hope and happiness and the only thing that matters, and that's me. Are we the tree or are we the chaff? There are only two options. There's no third way. There's no gray area. All right, last but not least, we read with obedience, desire and discipline, patience, and finally, we read with trust. We read with trust. Trusting that God is doing God's work. Hear me. Reading the Bible is not about changing myself, it's about making myself available for God to change me in God's own ways and timing. So, verse 5 and 6, this is what the psalmist says. Therefore, the wicked won't stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Why? For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. Isn't that interesting? Watches over. It's the word yada in Hebrew, it means to know, which means God is intimately wrapped up in the details of the lives of the righteous. What does the righteous person do? Well, they go to church every Sunday and they serve the poor and they give all their money. I mean, they might, but they do one thing. They read the law of God. It's the law of God that tells them when and how to do those things. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Here it is, but the way of the wicked will perish or leads to destruction. Pay attention. Does God punish the wicked in Psalm 1? The wicked punish themselves. Anytime we choose a life disconnected from the law and the spirit of God, we're not being punished by God, we're punishing ourselves because we're connecting our lives to something that has no life within it and disconnecting our lives from the source of a life that is God. If you pay attention to the poem, the very first word of the poem, Asherah, starts with the letter Aleph. That's the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The last word of the poem is the word Toveid. It means to perish. It starts with the letter tav. That's the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So what you get in the poem is the A to Z of life. And life really is that simple. How tragic would it be if this day passed, if this day passed and you didn't drink from the waters that are right there on your nightstand, on your phone, right beside the bed, right on the bookshelf, waters. Are you thirsty? Are you hungry? Are you desperate? It's right there, right there. Now, it might hurt, it might bore you. Boredom's good for us, by the way. Be nice for us to be disconnected from the scrolling for just a moment. It might hurt, it might bore, it might confuse, but it doesn't mean God isn't there. All you say, look at this, it's this simple, ready? You pray and you said, speak, Lord, your servant's listening. What should you read? Zephaniah? Sure. If you can find it, right? It's around there somewhere. <laughs> Philippians, yeah, that's good too. Jude, uh-huh. What about Revelation? Yeah, body count's high in Revelation, but go for it, yeah? <laughs> Joshua, what about those genealogies in First Chronicles? Yeah, read those too. All of it. Imbued with the life and the love of God. Martha heard that Jesus was making his way to her hometown. She knew how powerful Jesus was as a teacher, all the miracles that he performed. And so she wanted the pleasure of hosting him and his disciples in her home. So upon hearing this news, she immediately did everything to get the house ready. She went to the grocery store and bought all the ingredients for her best meals. She tidied up the house. She vacuumed and dusted and cleaned. She picked up all the excess. She went out to the garden, and cut some fresh flowers, and put them as a centerpiece on the table in her home. Her home was pristine and ready for Jesus. When Jesus walks into town, she says, Jesus, why don't you come and stay at my house for a little while? rest your feet, take some time off. And Jesus says, I would love to. So Jesus makes her way, the Messiah, the Son of God, in her house. She's thrilled. They sit down together and talk for a moment. Jesus washes up, so the disciples. And Jesus begins to talk and to teach. But Martha knows in order to be a good host, she's got to get some things going. She's got to get the meal started. She's got to get everything, kind of things moving. So she gets up, begins to work in the kitchen for a little bit. But her sister Mary, sitting right there, just googly eyes on Jesus, won't take her eyes off Jesus. Won't be distracted. So she starts getting frustrated. She says, let me give her 10 minutes or so, and then we'll see what happens. After about 10 minutes, Mary's not moving. So I can imagine she got to be a little passive aggressive, some, some vocal sighs, right? Just to show, hey, I'm here. I'm alone. I'm doing some work. You're paying attention. And then after that, Mary's not doing anything. And so she starts to get more vocal about it. Sure would be nice to, be, sure would be nice to have some help in here, right? So she starts to try to, try to get Mary's attention, but Mary, Mary won't be phased. So eventually, her anger shifts from her sister to Jesus, because Jesus is abiding this injustice. So finally, she looks at Jesus, the Savior of the world, and she says, Jesus, do you not care that I'm doing all the work and my sister isn't helping me? And then she bosses Jesus around. Tell her to get up and help me. Sounds like our prayer lives a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah. Tell her to get up and help me. Jesus responds in his own gentle yet firm way. He says this, Martha... Martha. He says her name twice. I always think of Marsha, 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 but Martha. Why twice? Why not just the once? Martha, Martha. Perhaps Martha was so busy serving the Lord that she couldn't hear him speak her name. Isn't that us? I'm going to live this week for you, Jesus. And Jesus says, why don't you just be with me? Can we just be together? Let me do the work through you. Quit trying, quit, quit trying to do work in my name. And so, says, Martha, Martha, he says, you're so anxious and distracted by many things, but only one thing is necessary. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen what's better, and what she's chosen can never be taken away from her. Imagine that. The 10 minutes, 2 hours, 30 seconds you spend reading any part of this book can never be taken away from you if your eyes are transfixed on the one who made you and loves you and wants to feed you by his spirit 2024 it could be a year of automatic backsliding autopilot from walking to standing to sitting or it could be the year that you finally take root and you rest and you work and seize it and you live out of the streams of god's life and not from your own strength Let's pray together. God, our lives are much more like the chaff, much more like Martha than they are Mary. We're so busy trying to serve you that we can hardly hear you speak our names. So grant us the strength and the grace to come home. Grant us the strength and the grace not to go through the motions of just reading the word of God to get it out of the way to go about our day. But instead, in the word of God, ultimately, may may we hear your voice, may we respond with obedience, and then may it transform every aspect of our lives. Root us deeply in the waters in this year. Root us deeply in your spirit and where we are lifeless. Transplant us out of the desert places into your word. Speak, Lord, this year, 2024, we are listening. We love you. In Jesus' name.